I just think that in the end, there's a lot of people who are smart, but there aren't always a lot of people who move you. It's very and, true. And like my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Virginia Brewer, I don't even know how far her education, but she had lived her life in a way and she had become the embodiment of love that she impacted so many people. So I think if you can tune in to love, you will love yourself, which means that you will embrace all of the gifts and the legacies and the graces that you've been given and you'll put them to work. If you love people, you will bring those gifts to people in a way that they can recognize it as good and they can feel like they were empowered and benefited by the excellence and the care. So I just think love, it's not maybe what you would expect an intellectual person to say. I just think in the end, you don't remember people who were just smart. You remember people who moved you. Boss Uncaged is a bi-weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners as they become uncaged trailblazers, unconventional thinkers, untethered trendsetters, and unstoppable tycoons. We always hear about overnight success stories, never knowing that it took 20 years to become a reality. Our host, S.A. Grant, conducts narrative accounts through the voices and stories behind Uncaged Bosses. In each episode, guests from a wide range of backgrounds sharing diverse business insights. Learn how to release your primal success through words of wisdom from inspirational entrepreneurs and industry experts as they depict who they are, how they juggle their work life with family life, their successful habits, business expertise, tools, and tips of their trade. Release the uncaged boss beast in you. Welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the show, Boss Uncaged. On today's show, we have C. Milano. This is going to be a definite treat today. So Milano is a a hybrid. He is not only a creative, but he's also an analytical individual. And just to give us a little bit of background, I mean, who are you, Milano? So I'm a dad. Yep. uh, Entrepreneur. And as you mentioned, I'm a creative and artist, but I'm also an executive. I live in a world where... You know, we were nurtured to be our whole selves, uh-huh. and that was about, you know, bifurcating executive thought from creative thought, and really, as we watched our ancestors do, right, both work every day and then come home and have a hustle, hustle where they were, <laughs> right, where they were maximizing their creative agency, sometimes as even a political act, right, the kind of political with a small p, like using your creative genius as a way to express your own sense of self-determination and agency over over your own controlled world. So, yeah, I see myself as just really every day trying to show up to be my whole self. Just with that statement, you kind of just set the bar, right? So define yourself in three to five words. Thinker, vision caster, executor. So on this show, we've had entrepreneurs, we've had educators, and I think that I know you, that you're a creative on one side, but you're also an educator on the other side, and you do a lot of nonprofit work, 
but you also do a lot of creative work. So you kind of just tell us a little bit about your education, kind of like your education background and, and how your journey began and then to where you are right now. Sure. So as a really young person, without reading Marsha Sinatar's book, her famous book was Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. Uh-huh. But as a young person, I had that belief. I just remember in elementary school tapping into the insight that if I could find the things that I was the most passionate about, and if I could develop expertise around those things, I would be successful. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, the big aspiration that I could see for myself was to be a physician. So everything in my sort of frame of view was around becoming a doctor. So I went to Northwestern undergrad and I was pre-med and then I majored in health policy, kind of health service administration. I loved that. I finished the pre-med core and I found that the policy part and the health administration part was actually more compelling to me than the medicine part. Okay. So I stayed on that track and ended up um, working in the city of Chicago at the sort of with the Cook County Bureau of Health Services, helping to open up a hospital on the South Side, Provident Hospital of Cook County, where Daniel Hale did the first African-American surgeon, did the first heart surgery. Nice. I love that work and was really passionate about it. Now, on the creative side, I had also grown up in high school. I ran track, but I also wasn't started modeling at 15. And you know, I had never had an ambition that modeling would be my full-time job. I mm-hmm. just thought it was something that I enjoyed that exposed me to lots of stuff. So I just kept doing it. So I did it all throughout undergrad, was doing it while I was working as a health administrator, health policy analyst, continued to just really enjoy and be passionate about urban poverty and expanding access to health care um, to black and brown populations on the south side of Chicago, um, and started then getting really interested in leadership. And where I worked at, which is the the Health Research and Educational Trust of the Hospital American Hospital Association, my boss at that time, Mary Pittman, who was the president, if you have Mary say it, she said she was not going to give me another promotion uh-huh. until I went back to graduate school. She saw me as being a high potential person and just felt like I needed that solid graduate training underneath me. So I went to Harvard for graduate school, studied leadership and organization, and um Ended up working at the Kennedy School, really looking at issues of leadership and philanthropy and also in the nonprofit sector. So, yeah, I started off being interested in being a medical doctor and kind of ended up being more interested in thinking about how to make organizations healthy mm-hmm. um, in service to a more just and equitable society. So that was the dawn of the Genius Group? I think so. It's a great question. So when I was at Harvard, I took lots of courses on how leaders thought. And there was a book that was popular while I was in graduate school called The Theory of Multiple Intelligences, which Hmm. was by Howard Gardner's work. And it really characterized seven different kinds of smarts. Oftentimes when we think about smarts, we think about logical, rational smarts, but we don't think about aesthetics. We don't think about kinesthetics, like bodily movement. And what Howard's work really documented is that there are these multiple kinds and domains of intelligence. And the genius group is a little snarky, sarcastic, Mm -hmm. because a lot of black and brown students, graduate students at, at Harvard, we saw our families sort of execute creative genius and ingenuity in their own 
like hustle in their own surviving out of, you know, context of poverty. Mm-hmm. But we noticed that it never got put into the canon of what constituted genius. So it wasn't like considered a MacArthur Genius Award to have survived your neighborhood. (laughs) But in fact, for some people, it was quite a feat. Mm -hmm. So the Genius Group is really a little bit of a quasi, it's a little sardonic in the sense of reclaiming the fact that there. Within our nation's communities, there are tons of people who are exercising creative genius and agency. Mm-hmm. And what would happen if we had a company that tapped into that on behalf of community transformation? Yeah, I think being that I know what the Genius Group does, and I've we've been working together for like almost like 10 years at this point in time. Right. It, it gives me um, an area to say that I can see the transition. You know, you started with the Genius Group, but potentially you use the Genius Group to fund C. Milano, the clothing brand. Absolutely. So a lot of people don't really understand the magnitude of, of how that's done. And I think if you can kind of give a little insight to that, I think it'll be very beneficial because when you have one company, most of the time that takes 100% of your efforts. Yeah. So, you know, truth in advertising, I, I'm probably not penultimate executive, but one thing I did understand from my training and also just watching, just practically watching people who have own businesses is it was always communicated to me that one of the biggest markers of success is the ability for you actually to be able to create something and have someone else work in it and it still be able to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't want to create an enterprise circumstance that was so founder centric Mm -hmm. that I wasn't starting to productize my service, that I wasn't documenting the processes that we were using that were making us successful repeatably Mm -hmm. and using those practices again and again so that the success of the genius group wasn't because of a charismatic individual. It was because a set of repeatable practices that anyone who was thoughtful Mm -hmm. could use. So one of the things that you'll note we do, we've got practices that we repeat in mm. that business. We practice setting up our clients a particular kind of way, and it's documented. Mm. We practice uh, debriefing the success of a good project, mm. and it's documented. So you're using repeatable systems. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about yeah. this, how important it is in your business to understand what got you to success and not have it just be... Um, the creativity, the ingenuity that no one really understands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one piece. The second piece is I've learned as an entrepreneur how important it is to follow your joy and your bliss. And I had gotten a fellowship by the Association of Black Foundation Executives to look at issues of social equity in the philanthropic field and one of the huge gifts of that was also we got an executive coach. Nice. Uh, this fantastic Latina from New York, Eva Mantevo. And Eva was, was saying to me, Milano, I just don't think you're as happy as you say you are. I think that something is missing. And I just kept searching my heart. And she said, well, I want you to do a vision board. Nice. And I want you to describe what you feel like would be the most exciting and compelling future. And I did this vision board and it had all these men's fashion Mm -hmm. garments and images in it. And I was thinking, 
wow, there was a lot of philanthropy in it, which was our, which I think would represent the genius group, making a difference in the world on behalf of communities and using the tools of organized philanthropy, including the investment power and the influence to sort of do good in the world. But there was most of it was about fashion. And, and as Eva went through my vision board with me, one of the things that she helped me to appreciate this, there was a whole part of what makes me whole that wasn't showing up in my work. Mm. I held that creative tension of something desiring to be born, but not knowing what needed to give birth. And then during that Christmas holiday, this was back in 2011, my son's godfather, Harlan, had come over and we were just sitting at the kitchen talking and it ended up that I had been designing all these men's coats, I kept showing Harlan. And my son, Zachary, at the time said to me, dad, after his godfather had left, he said, dad, you know, that coat thing that you got, mm -hmm. all these coats you've been making. He said, I think that's like a real thing. I think you ought to do something with that. So, you know, the Bible says that a child shall lead them. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, when he described what I should do in a previous iteration of my life, when I was back in Chicago, my best friend and I, Purnell, used to sing and songwrite. And in the studio, there's a phenomenon when you're creating a song and the idea is coming to you where you get, we call kind of big ears. Mm -hmm. It's like you can hear those lyrics becoming a song. Got it. And when Zach said to me, dad, I think you ought to do something with this coat thing. Like I got big ears and I could see that that was the entrepreneurial idea that I had been mm. longing for that could feel that kind of creative tension and desire. That was the birthing of the genius group. So now I'm, let me go back to your practical question, yeah. which is I knew that financially that my kids were in, I think they were about to go to private school. You know, I've already kind of was striking out on one entrepreneurial venture. I knew that I couldn't just stop doing the genius group financially. Mm -hmm. So what I gave myself permission to do is to begin where I was. I co-located my businesses. I started kind of ramping up the development of the brand. I didn't have mm -hmm. the money to fund full out operations or to start executing. I didn't have a product yet, which you know, yeah. Yeah. but I had all these clarity about what I wanted mm -hmm. the brand to be, what I wanted the values to be, where I wanted to be positioned in the marketplace. So I think the permission that I gave myself was to start where I was. And I also had the wisdom or the insight to bring smart people who had expertise in different dimensions of what we would do like you in branding. I gave myself permission to start engaging you all. And little by little, you know, website. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing we had actual brands. Mm -hmm. Then we had labels for brands. <laughs> My decision was to build the infrastructure because one day, when that one day came, when I would have the resources to kind of progressively do the next mm -hmm. step. So that was my wisdom on how to start where I was. Yeah, I think just telling that story just paints a vision board, right? If I'm starting from ground zero, I think you just gave me a very clear depiction of how do I take my current job or currently what I'm doing and how do I execute it? moving forward into a brand. And I'm really happy that you brought up brand because, I mean, you're like the epitome of brand awareness, 
mm. right? Because your Genius Group is a brand in itself. It's more of an underground brand it, without you being the face of it, like you said. You didn't want to be the, the, the Steve Jobs of that particular brand. But then you created the C. Milano brand, which you are clearly the Steve Jobs, the Steve Jobs of that brand. And your marketing, when I look at your stuff, it's not just you're just putting content out there. It's perfected content that you're putting out there on a routine, regular basis. And if you don't know Milano, you have to know Milano is very detail-oriented, okay? And just to see if you get a chance to go to his website, um, cmilanoinc.com, you can kind of definitely see some of the things that we're talking about and all these garments that's on this website you created in a short period of time. Right. So just going into like the duration of time, we always hear about the 20 years it takes for somebody to become successful. Yeah. But the reality is it seems like it's overnight success. How long did it take you to get from point A to where you are currently? That's a great question. So C. Milano Inc. will be eight years. If you're in the Judeo-Christian ethic, eight is the number of new beginnings. Nice. Um, Seven is the number of completion. I actually... I'm a big subscriber to um, Malcolm Gladwell's oh, notion yes. of outliner, outliers. Mm-hmm. I think it takes a good 10 years, although all of those 10 years don't have to be, you know, sort of pounding the payment. I think my starting my journey as a model at 15, mm-hmm. I'm 51. I think all of those years of doing just really practical fashion work of going on go sees and being a part of agencies and doing fashion shows and doing photo shoots, mm-hmm. I didn't realize it then. I was building C. Milano Inc. then. Yeah, definitely. Because I was getting the contextual knowledge. I might not have been, I was learning how garments fit. Mm-hmm. I'm a tall guy, so I could also learn how they don't fit well. I'm a man of color, so I was also noting that men of color weren't well represented in men's fashion as a face. Mm -hmm. So along the way, I was sort of doing market research and didn't know it. I was making sharp observations about things that were missing, that were valuable, things that were needed that weren't present. And I was not just in terms of marketing and appearance and advertising, but also in terms of product. So I was doing some of that contextual research in my lived experience. Once the clock started ticking, one, y'all don't know that Chanel is a phenomenal, you probably do know he's a phenomenal graphic designer. He actually recently spoke to my son who's interested in graphic design. One of the things that he conveyed to Zachary, my son, was the importance of principles. So one principle that I started in my early years is I would get up probably around two or three in the morning and design for two hours. I would cut fabric. I'd have a shaping mannequin and I would create, I'd be actually creating garments. The discipline of doing that every Mm -hmm. day for like almost seven years, it so deepened the marketing, branding, outreach Um, expressive part of my work because I was giving myself that deepening. So to your question, I'm not sure how long it takes, but I know that you don't get fruits without roots. I know that you don't get expressive designs that are novel and fresh and different without understanding the basics of design. What I would tell anybody is start now, start today. 
rooting yourself, grounding yourself, anchoring yourself in the content of your field and in the practice of your field. There is no substitution for basics. I know that we live in a kind of a very accelerated age where you can get information in a moment. But Quake, my son, one of my sons goes to a Quaker school. One of the things that Quakers talk about is how you have to sit in silence and season. Hmm. There is no substitution for putting in the time that it takes to nurture the gifts that you have. Hmm. Yeah, that's a jewel in itself. Uh, Moving on to the next topic at hand. So the duration of time, you're just saying start now, right? But in your case, what would you have done differently to get you to where you are a lot faster if you could do it again? Wow, that's a great question. It's funny. I'm connected to a a number of entrepreneurs in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. and I was having this conversation with my friend Von Nicosi last week. I said, if I really, really understood how much being an entrepreneur was in my soul as a young person, not if I understood that I would kind of process through different careers and ultimately the the ground that I would stand Mm -hmm. on as being an entrepreneur, I would have saved every red cent I had. As a young person, I would have started saving because you need the financial security underneath you to support you in those early years to create stability. I think to respond to your question, I would have saved more. I also might have, you know, when I was in graduate school, I didn't take as I took some courses in finance and financial management, Mm -hmm. but I would have taken a lot more. I would have actually sought to understand real estate more because at the end of the day, you got to have a place to actually do your craft. Correct. You don't always have to have that to get started, but you have to have certain elements of organization to expand and grow. So in retrospect, I wish that I would have kind of looked at some of those expansion topic, Mm -hmm. some of the basics that you need, not just to create the business. I did that part. Yeah, definitely. But what you need to kind of scale the business, to grow the business. And because it's a different vocabulary than starting. Hmm. I mean, that's a good segue for the next question that I have for you. Being that you have this Ivy League graduate background, right, which kind of breeds you into becoming a business owner, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then you took that and you created a business. And then from that business, you created another business. It's ingrained in you. So did that come from potentially your parents? Did that come from somebody in your family? Do you have an entrepreneurial background outside of your education? That's a good question. So my family, I mean... There are folks who worked in institutional settings, but they were entrepreneurial in their approach to work. Like my mom is wonderfully creative. So I think I definitely import. I think it's in the, in the generational genes pool, mm-hmm. the whole being creative. But it felt like a big risk. When it is, I, right? When it felt like a big, when I say risk, what I mean by that is like a, even almost like an identity risk. In other words, like it felt very different to kind of move out of being in an institutional setting, like having a good job, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. as black and brown folks, you know, you got that good job. So (laughs) moving from that to actually being a job creator uh, and creating the environment where other people can have good experiences at work, that felt like something I kind of had to piece together myself. And even at Harvard, I just remember back being back at graduate school, very few folks were leaving graduate school to start companies. 
Many folks were leaving their training to go work in institutions where they either were trying to go for those very elite institutional settings where they could kind of be, get a great salary and great benefits. So even in that way, I felt, I mean, I, I became one of those persons. I actually got a job. I worked at the Kennedy School of Government um, while my wife was finishing her training, her medical training. And then when we moved to Atlanta, I worked at a health foundation. But the move to go into entrepreneurship felt really different. The only part that I think when I made that transition, I drew upon my family's legacy of faith in God and courage and just inner fortitude. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely drew on those resources, but I felt like I was really blazing a very different trail. Got it. That's definitely interesting. And then you bring up family. I know you're, you're a big family man. So this is one of the questions that I always ask that I always want to get the inside. But how do you juggle your work life with your family life? It's hard. I mean, and then sometimes I don't feel like I do a great job of it. I'm pretty committed to my family and my, my I have two sons. I try to make Saturday an off day for sure. So I've got this on my desk. I put up on Saturdays. I do it in the morning. No adulting. <laughs> So Saturdays is, in my mind, kind of set up as a day for the family. It's a day for catching up with the boys. And even if that catching up means driving, drive, taking them to different basketball practices mm -hmm. or whatever, we do a father-son workout. That was something in my heart to do, which has been fantastic for us. We Sundays, we do movie day mm -hmm. if they're not committed. So I try to create some kind of ritualized activity that mm -hmm. they can kind of look, look forward, forward to. to. Yeah. That becomes, you know, we're not always able to do it every week, mm -hmm. but I try to do it regularly enough where it becomes a, you know, I think a lot of parenting to me is creating good memories, that it can be a good memory for my kids of time that we had together, time that I tried to create the occasion to, mm -hmm. to really talk to them more deeply about what's going on with them, either in life or in school. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely believe in the same philosophy across the board. And I think for you, it's, it's kind of really tough because, I mean, your travel schedule is, I don't know where you're going to be, when you're going to, you know, you could be in Italy one day and you could be in New York the next, or you could be on the West Coast two days after that. So it definitely has to be structured in order for you to execute, to be on a routine. So. Yeah. So the weekends matter a lot to me in terms of time off. Mm -hmm. As even in the consulting practice, it is very rare for me to work weekends. It's really a kind of a last resort thing. It is just not something that I like to practice. But there are a couple. I sit on a foundation board in Manhattan, and a lot of times those board meetings are actually over a weekend. Mm -hmm. But I really try to limit the travel that I would be away from my family over the weekends. That's another commitment. And then um, in 2021, new thing that I'm doing to try to get back some of my time as I'm moving towards a four day work week. Nice. So the way it's set up is either I will take a Monday or a Friday off. And again, it's trying to lengthen that weekend, trying to create more opportunities with time to be with, you know, to be with my family. Got it. Got it. Um, you brought up mornings. So what are your morning routines? And I know you, you probably have a very strict regimen. So what, what is that? So I wake up around three 30 in the morning I try to spend time in prayer and meditation as a practice, both to build my own sort of sense of spirit, because I actually think that we are living in times that leaders have to reinforce and refresh your deepest self. Mm -hmm. And I also think we're living in times where you have to remind yourself about 
your values and kind of what you care about at your core, because it's easy to get separated from that. And then I work out. So I'm a vegan. Uh, I was vegetarian for 17 years. I kind of made the transition. I think I'm moving into my second year of being a vegan. And I work out. I love HIT, like high-intensity training work. I love to hit the gym, do some weights. I like group exercise. I like stuff that gives me energy. I can hear mm -hmm. music. That's an important part because I do think that as a change maker, as a person who's working to build a better world, I have to balance that change making with my wellness keeping. I feel like it is my responsibility to model to my kids health. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those are my practices. I pray. I read my word. I meditate. I journal. I write a lot. And then I transition into some fitness. And then I'm kind of in daddy duty shifting to pick up kids, make French toast. <laughs> and I love that stuff too. I mean, it's not a drudgery. It's a part of it. It's a part of the, like these little touches that you get with your kids that make you feel whole and that make them feel whole. My son Zach said to me the other day, dad, you gonna make French toast tomorrow. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> so yeah, those are like little things that I do to, and to your point, those are routines. Cause I think underneath a lot of success are habits. Yep. Very Stephen Covey, Seven mm -hmm. Habits of Highly Effective People. I think that in the end, what I can convey to my colleagues is I had a discipline for excellence. I had a habit for health. You know, I think if my life gets deconstructed down to my habits, I want people to see that I had some commitments that I cared about mm -hmm. and that I kept. Yeah. This is so funny because, I mean, you know Richard Bakari, right? Yeah. So I, I interviewed Richard, and Richard was like the reigning champ as far as morning routines. <laughs> Until you came said three thirty. Oh, I see. <laughs> His routine starts at roughly around four thirty, five o'clock, and it's it's very segmented like yours. But the fact that you wake up at three thirty every single morning is just a testament to who you are. What is your nightly routine? I mean, you, if you're waking up at three thirty, I mean, you're going to bed like before the sun sets. No, no, I and I can't like so. I'm a lark, not an owl. Mm -hmm. I've had to adopt night owl like habits. My domain is the morning. Mm. So, yeah, so it's funny. I do have evening things. My evening things are getting set up. I call it first meeting. I actually call it first coffee and first meeting. Got it. I look in my day timer and I look at what time is my first meeting, which will drive how I need to dress, <laughs> where I have, like, what time I need to be after I take my kids. And then... The way I end my day at the office is actually I put water and coffee in the coffee pot for the next day. Got it. I've been doing it for like, I think, seven years. Mm -hmm. It's just a habit. It's my way of saying that I'm getting up for the next day and I like, and that the coffee is as easy as one button. And anybody who knows me knows that I love coffee. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, you got a different cup for pretty much every day. Yes, sir. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in 20 years? Um, well, so I'm working out crazy cause I want to stay vital and vibrant and healthy. So I actually still see myself very, I see myself kind of almost like a Ralph Lauren having really built out my fashion empire as it mm. were, having the choice to work in it or not having included my son's in that work as much as they want to be. Well, especially Zach. Yeah, right. Especially Zach. Yeah, yeah. But Seth, too. Seth is also interested in fashion in his own way. I can imagine. I went to the south of France one year, a couple of years ago. I went to Nice and I got my hair cut by some 
people of color, some Ethiopians that owned a... I actually was pretty struck that there were so many people of color hmm. in the south of France and how stunning it was. And I, I said to myself, wow, I'd love to be able to afford to retire here or spend a part of my retirement here. So I'm hoping that I'm going to make that real. I'll have some kind of little re- retirement situation in the south of France, which is an amazing thing to think hmm. about. I mean, just with your business savviness and your business sense, I mean, it's going to be a reality. The other thing that I think I would like to do, I would like to actually be teaching in some kind of international business school. I think that I feel like I've learned some things that I would love to share with the next generation, both in my own community here mm-hmm. in the U.S., but maybe with young folks who are new global citizens themselves. And I think by then I would have seen some things. Hmm. So what tools that you use that you wouldn't be able to do your business without? Oh, man, this is great. So not that Google really needs any advertisement Uh, from me. Good (laughs) Lord. I really use Google business apps a lot. So our platform, our email platform is built on that. But we do a lot of we do a lot of sharing app of not of documents. Mm -hmm. It's been great. So I also use a number of the video link kinds of software like Zoom because many of my – like so today I had – before I came to meet with you, I was on the phone with a colleague in Budapest. Nice. So I do use kind of the virtual connections. A conversation that I started in my car, it wasn't moving, that then transitioned into my office. What are other things that I – I travel a lot. So – it took me a minute, and this is because my mom, when I was growing up, didn't have an American Express Platinum card, but I do. So it took me a minute to realize that I could go into some of the, like, Delta's um, Sky Lounge for free. Mm-hmm. And I always used to think, gosh, that's so high-end. That's so. Can I tell you that when you are busy, being able to grab a free meal and get a document done and print it, mm-hmm. like... I log in a lot of airtime and being able to use those kinds of places, it's more than just like luxurious. It actually practically helps me to be effective. Hmm. And then my last little tool trick of the trade is having everything that I need to operate in my backpack. So I use a Tumi backpack. I have reduced everything down to small digital things. So I have a small MacBook. I am like a little advertisement for all these companies. <laughs> I have pens. I have notebooks. I have audio recorders. Everything that I need to conduct business wherever I am is in mm-hmm. my book bag. Because things happen. I've There have been times in Atlanta where I've gotten caught in traffic and I needed to just turn off and go to a Starbucks in order to take a call. So I try to kind of be very practical in that way. Mm-hmm. So it seems like your core one thing collectively that you say that is mobility. That's awesome. I didn't think about it that way. Everything that, that you're saying, you need to have documents in the cloud, yep. access to them wherever you need to have small devices to, on the go. You need to have access when you're at the airport. Everything that you're saying is mobility. It's an interesting and very perceptive observation on your part because we went through a whole uh, year at my company where we basically we didn't go paperless. Mm-hmm. But we definitely went to the cloud and we organized things. That's a great observation. Yeah, great, great. All right. 
Final words of wisdom. If I'm a new person coming into your industry, whether it's on the nonprofit sector or it's on the fashion sector, what's one key thing that you could leave behind that I can use to follow in your footsteps? One word in all three dimensions, love. Love God, love and know yourself, Mm -hmm. and love people. I just think that in the end, there's a lot of people who are smart, but there aren't always a lot of people who move you. It's very true. And like my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Virginia Brewer, I don't even know how far her education, but she had lived her life in a way and she had become the embodiment of love that she impacted so many people. So I think if you can tune in to love, you will love yourself, which means that you will embrace all of the gifts and the legacies and the graces that you've been given and you'll put them to work. If you love people, you will bring those gifts to people in a way that they can recognize it as good. And they can feel like they were empowered and benefited by the excellence and the care. So I just think love, it's not maybe what you would expect an intellectual person to say. I just think in the end, you don't remember people who were just smart. You remember people who moved you. Yeah, that's definitely pretty powerful. I mean, saying something that's that powerful, I mean, how can people find you online? I mean, what's your website, your Instagram, All right, so if you're interested in philanthropy and strategy and helping bring more strategic insightfulness and wisdom to the good work that you're already doing in the community, thegeniusgroup.com. If you are interested in men's custom garments, uh, although I can... Uh, happily report that we've just started this year making women's coats and nice. we are moving nice. those elements. You can check us out at cmilanoinc.com. We're going to be moving through a brand refresh this year in our eighth year. Nice. So we're going to be doing some other cool things with the website, but yeah, happy to meet you there. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. What's your handles on Instagram and Twitter? Uh, and Facebook? Instagram is Carlos Milano Harden. So it's a designer page. Twitter is the Couture Code. It is C Milano Inc. And Facebook is C Milano Inc. Great, great. So I got a bonus question for you. Yes, sir. If you could spend 24 hours with anybody, dead or alive. Oh, I love this question. Who would it be and why? It would be Martin Luther King. Nice. I feel like I would say... Gosh, I feel like I'm getting emotional just even saying that. I feel like I would say thank you for dreaming me. Mm. And that I would say to him that I'm a part of the dream you saw. And then I'd talk to him about what I'm dreaming. And I would ask him, how could I bring more justice and fairness and equity to fashion? How could I use this platform that I feel like life and God has given me to further the dream? Hmm. Well said. Well, I definitely do appreciate you taking the time out, your, your crazy schedule to come out yes, and sir. do the podcast today. I definitely appreciate it. This was fun. I, you, you had me think about things that I didn't plan to think about, but it, they were good to think about. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. Great. Great. All right. So that's the end of the first podcast. And the second one is just like a short five-minute podcast where we flip the roles. Okay. So just you could ask me any questions. It could be insightful questions, business questions, whatever you want, and I'll answer them. So and that's the spinoff podcast I'm going to release at the end of the month called Boss Up Q&A.
So by all means, go for it. All right. I love this new platform that you've created, Boss Uncaged. Correct. Talk about a cage that you had to climb out of <laughs> to uncover your own sort of sense of power. <laughs> you know, being the boss, right? Like, was it a limit? Was it a feeling of a limit? What was something that you had to release? So I, when I think about the cube of a cage as it represents itself, I think of it more as a hypercube, right? Adding time as that dimension. Mm. So I think I've been breaking out of this cage over and over and over and over again, but I never realized I was breaking out the cage. And, and then when I came to the realization that, okay, I've been the guy behind the scenes helping all these business owners and all these entrepreneurs step up to the next level or step into becoming a brand. And then I wasn't self-aware of my own individual brand. Wow. So that was the transition for me. And I would say it, it happened post stroke. When I had my stroke was like the awakening kind of like that was the final cage. And once wow. I came out of that cage, I was like, okay, I'm a free beast. I'm an animal and I'm going to run wild. <laughs> that's awesome. And then, so that's a more of a philosophical question. This is a more of a practical question. Mm -hmm. I come to you for branding advice mm -hmm. and wisdom and practices. Where do you see the world of companies presenting themselves to the world going? Like when you think about the next new thing mm -hmm. in branding, what do you sort of see that being? Believe it or not, I still think there is a parallel construct between what's good now and what's going to be good tomorrow. And I think now it's still the social media bubble. The, the irony is in my first podcast, we kind of talked about that. It was like, is it going to be TikTok? Is it still going to be YouTube? Is it going to be Facebook? And I think all those things are always going to be around. But I think the way society is moving in the direction we're moving, I think it's going to be more hands-free. Just like you're saying, you're in a mobility factor, right? You want things smaller, lighter, more efficient, more effective. Well, if you take the physical aspect of doing something with your hands out of it. Mm. So I'm not jumping into the future on some sci-fi where we just think it and it becomes a reality. But if you can at least speak it and get a leg up on what you're doing, I think that's really an unrated market right now. Is so, that, I mean, is that art is, as a follow-up probe, is that artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. Is it? voice dick you know sort of voice, voice activated yeah so i mean between google i'm not gonna say her name because she's in here as well the amazon dot as well too um siri is kind of lagging behind the other two but for me personally like pretty much every room in my house there's one of each or two of each i'm always doing usability testing i'm always saying okay how do i use this to execute something for the family how do i use this to execute something for business and then it's even in the cars now so there's an echo show auto version that i actually have in my car that gives me a seamless transition so i can say hey do this in the house i can get in the car and pick up my dictation i can pick up my notes i can pick up my calendar i can make phone calls i can play music all as if i'm in my office Wow. So cool. it gives me an opportunity to kind of test this market because even with a podcast, you could say, hey, open up this podcast. Or I could say good morning. And by telling her good morning, it could have a series of events that happen, which is a podcast being the newest podcast from a particular episode playing next out loud. So I'm thinking to answer your question, I think within the next five to 10 years, the transition should be from physical, like from going to a website to being able to just speak to her. And if you could speak to her about products, if you're looking for something, if you're doing searches, I'm thinking she's going to be the next up and coming that could rival even probably Google or um, Bing for that matter. So interesting. Final question is, I guess, on the family front, mm -hmm. having had the opportunity to spend a little time with your son, how are you thinking about legacy? Mm -hmm. Like, how are you thinking about either 
bringing him into the work now or leaving something behind for him? So I think in his earlier days, I went really hard. It was just kind of like, this is how you monetize. This is how you make things system. This is how you scale. And he was five. (laughs) Right. So did he comprehend all of it? Probably not. But then I started seeing him take some of these things and he would go to school and apply it. Right. So he was hustling candy one year. (laughs) <laughs> selling candy and, and then also he was selling Pokemon cards one year and he was buying Pokemon cards at like reduced cost and had like a 3000% markup and he understand those principles and then he became a teenager mm. and then the teenager with the chemical imbalances is kind of like this haze and I'm just waiting for him to come out the haze <laughs> and the second he comes out the haze I'm hoping that everything I've taught him in his earlier years would start making more clarity and sense as far as you can go work for somebody. You should work for somebody for a period of time to kind of realize that the world could be yours, but you have to earn it. It's not given to you. That's right. And then once you kind of come out this nostalgia of, I just want, I want, I want. Now you're at that point in time to where everything that I've been teaching you since you were three years old, will make primary sense. And you're going to 18 to 21 years old. And now you have an opportunity to say, okay, you know what? have enough information from my 18 years of life, I want to start something. That's awesome. So in some ways, he's got to come out of the teenage cage yeah. <laughs> to kind of unleash yeah. his his boss. Yeah, because he went from literally being a little mini boss <laughs> to a teenage, uh, you know, more of the whiny kind of, you know, I want to do what I want to do, kind of the lazy mentality. And I'm just kind of like, dude, life is going to eat you up or you're going to have to break out the cage and go hunting yourself. So he has to make that decision consciously. And I'm not forcing it on him because I don't want him to be 20 years old and be like, I never want to run my own business because my dad forced it to me. Right, right. Or I didn't feel like I got to be a kid. Yeah, yeah. Right. Cool. 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 I definitely appreciate it, man. This is great. Cool. Over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to become an uncaged trailblazer. If this podcast helped you, please email me about it. Submit additional questions you would love to hear me ask our guests and or drop me your thoughts at asksagrant.com. Post comments, share, hit subscribe, and remember to become a boss uncaged. You have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful book, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.sagrant.com slash boss uncaged.